You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gcceugene.org. Good morning. Well, welcome to Gospel Community Church. My name is Ronnie. If, if uh, you haven't met me yet or I don't know you, I'd love to meet you and get to know you. Been a part of GCC pretty much since the, the first meeting. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you have any questions about anything going on in the church or any complaints and gripes about the sermon, you can always send those to Brad's email. Um, it's my privilege and honor to bring you God's word today. We're picking up in our sermon series that we've been walking through as a church, Live. And what we've been doing is we've been looking at Jesus's Sermon on the Mount, which is his first large discourse he gave right at the beginning of his ministry. So he gave uh, several sermons, several uh, parts where he'd stand up and teach to the people. But this was really the big, uh, the first big one in his public ministry. And we've been looking at it and we've entitled the sermon Live because it really kind of encapsulates what Christians are, are supposed to look like as they live on, on this earth as followers of Christ, what that life looks like, how to do it well, how to thrive, not just like live and exist, but how to live into the abundance that Christ has even called us into. So we're picking up where Rick left off last week at Matthew 6. Uh, well, he left off at the end of Matthew chapter 5. So if you have a Bible, you can open it up right at the beginning of Matthew chapter 6. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 15. As I said, this is, this is early on in Jesus' ministry. Uh, this is all about uh, Christian living, Christian discipleship. So it concerns how we're called to live. We all find our purpose and why we're here and what we're to be doing here on, in the Sermon on the Mount. But these exhortations concern more than purpose. They also instruct us how to live life best so that we can grow into the fullness of life and even ex- help others experience that as well and bring that outward. And the passage today concerns a little bit of both, what we should and should not do for the sake, for our sake and for the sake of others. So we'll go ahead and read Matthew 6, 1 through 15, and then we'll jump into this together. Verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, Sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray... Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty praises as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let's pray. God, you are holy. We thank you for who you are and what you've done. We thank you for this time and the space and the word that you've given us. I pray that it would begin to shape and change how we live our lives. We pray that the, uh, just this passage, as we look over it, 
and digested together that there would be something in here that we're able to walk away with uh, changed about, that we would begin to implement in our lives for our own sake and, and for the welfare of those around us. So we love you, God. Thank you for this time. Amen. As we look back at chapter five and even coming into these, these two passages today, a lot of what Jesus was doing and is now doing in six and back in chapter five was correcting a lot of misconceptions and helping us see more clearly. Even look at the language when Jesus sets up all these exhortations that he delivers in the sermons. Back in Matthew 5, 17, he says, do not think. He starts us saying, do not think you know, this way, and then he goes into another one. He's correcting a misconception. Six times, we see that Jesus uses the phrase, you have heard that it was said, back in Matthew chapter 5, in verses 17, 21, 27, 31, 33, 38, 30, 43. Every single exhortation he's about to give, he's correcting some sort of misconception. Because the truth is, men have their traditions. We have different ways of seeing the world and even building up different ways of seeing the world. But when Jesus came, he came to deliver truth and correct a lot of the misconceptions that people had had, especially concerning the law of God and how we're supposed to live in relation to one another. Both passages we're looking at today start with beware and when you. So we have a caution at the beginning of chapter six and then instruction as we come into the second passage. Look with me at verse one. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. And, and this is important. And just as we, as we move into the rest of this message, I, I, to give you a kind of a main idea to hold on to and remember as we move on, if you are in Christ, if you are a, a Christian, a follower of Jesus, you already have God's approval. If you are in Christ, you have God's approval. We see even in the beginning of this passage, it, it wasn't so much of a big deal that people are doing good things. And it's not, that's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying don't do good deeds, even don't do good deeds in front of people. It says don't do them in order to be seen by them. And that's an important distinction because it comes down to whose approval do you desire? Paul says of himself that if he were trying to please people, he himself would not be a servant of Christ. And if you look at what Jesus says in John 12, he talks about those who had actually walked away from Jesus, that they no longer followed him and actually hid the fact that they even listened to him because it says they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. It was the, the approval that they sought from man that actually pulled them away from Christ and being one of his followers and disciples. One of the awful things about seeking man's approval, and when I say man, of course, I'm, I'm speaking men and women, any human being, if you're seeking their approval, one of the most awful things about it is that you may not even get it. No matter how hard you may be seeking it, you may not obtain it. You could work to win the approval of your parents, your spouse, your boss, and in the end, all your work could be for nothing. Second, it can't save you. When you stand before God on judgment day, you are not judged by a jury of your peers. Nobody's going to come to your defense before God and say, well, you know, Jim was kind of a nice guy. I mean, I saw him post on Instagram of how he gave sandwiches out to the homeless people. In verse 2, we see Jesus even gives a real-life example of some of what he's criticizing here. It says, Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets, so that they may be praised by others. I, that, that has to be some kind of Greek idiom, sounding a trumpet before you. I don't think they were literally sounding a trumpet as they go to give money to the poor or give money to the needy. But I think this was uh, some sort of idiom that they were making a big deal about it. They really wanted people to know that, hey, everybody, look what I'm doing. I'm giving money. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm giving alms, which was very important, especially at that time in Jewish uh, culture, to be giving alms. That was one of the most important things you could do to practically live out your faith. 
And so he's saying to them, it was very important that people saw that, yes, I am a man of faith and I am doing this thing. Again, look at the purpose behind the action, even in this verse. Jesus says, that they may be praised by others. They're doing it, again, for the approval of men. And that kind of righteousness, that kind of good deed, that is in no way the kind of righteousness that, that Jesus, that reflects what Jesus did when he came on this earth. When he came to live the perfect life, die for us, and was raised again, uh, that, that is not at all reflective of what he did. That is a righteousness practiced for their own benefit. Let me ask you this question. Think about this. Who did the righteousness of Christ benefit? All of what Jesus did in his earthly ministry, what did his good deeds, who did they benefit? It was you. You who believe. You believe in Christ. That was for your benefit. His righteous deeds were not for himself, but it was for the glory of God and for you. He glorified God in the redemption of sinners and blessed you by applying that righteousness to you. It wasn't, it wasn't so that people would heap praise upon him, but it was for the sake of others. So a kind of righteousness that is practiced so that others could see you and praise you for all that you've done in no way reflects the righteousness that Christ demonstrated for us. If you want to emulate the righteousness of Christ, don't give to be praised by others. You don't help your neighbor for the approval of the whole block. If you're seeking to reflect that, do it to honor God. Let him see. And, and, you, and you know what's awesome about this? doing righteous deeds in this sort of way or doing good deeds in this sort of way is that you already have God's approval. Back to what I said earlier about the approval of men, many times you won't get it. Even if you do something good, you may not get it. And, and what's funny, we actually, um, I think this was back when I was in Rick's gospel community group. We did like a, an improvement project, I think at Tony and Dana's. And it was like, it was a little, little roundabout that went into a couple different houses, right? And we were out there for a couple hours. I think some people brought like weed whackers. And so we're out ripping out weeds and all this stuff to kind of, you know, in the military, we call it beautification, which is a pretty word for landscaping. But we were trying to beautify the area, just make it a little bit more pleasant on the eyes. And I actually used to do landscaping for work. And one of the things I learned as a landscaper that my boss taught me and told me is that a lot of, a lot of times uh, when a tree grows, it grows smaller little almost like mini trees on the side. Does everybody know what I'm talking about? You've probably seen them around here too. We called those suckers. Nicole looked it up online. There's actually like a real technical term, but they, they kind of draw nutrients away from the main source of the tree. And out in Oregon, it kind of rains a lot. But when I was back in Reno, this was a real problem. And you could even see it in the trees if it had a lot of suckers down at the bottom that was drawing nutrients away from the tree. The top part of the tree would have no foliage. It'd be missing a bunch of leaves. And so we were always instructed, you need to make sure you cut these down and get rid of them. So we're out there. I remove the sucker. There was like a really big sucker that was taking quite a bit of nutrients for the tree. So we lopped that down. And I, I think the whole time we were out there, I think only one neighbor ever came out to say something about what we were doing. And it was, it was, uh, it was disapproval. <laughs> he didn't like that we had cut down that one sucker. So we were, we were out there for a couple hours, like weed whacking, hauling stuff, putting it in, I think in Daniel's trailer. And the, the only approval we got was disapproval from one of the neighbors as to how we were doing it. So that's the sad thing and all that you could do to try to impress a human being is that ultimately they could look at all the work you've done and not be approved at all. And some of us have probably even experienced this from our spouses, from parents. Maybe you did sports in high school and no matter how hard you try, your parents looked upon you with disapproval or something like this. And that, that's what's kind of awful about seeking the approval of man. But you don't need the approval of man. You already have it from God. This approval, his approval of Christ is applied 
to you through faith in his righteousness so that it's nothing that you have to go and seek and earn, not from God, not from man, but it's something that's been applied to you through the perfect righteousness of Christ. The father approved of the works of Jesus and that was applied to you so that you could have all the approval that you could ever need. Nothing that you'd ever have to seek out or earn, but something that is applied to you so that you can go and do good deeds in the freedom that you already have God's approval, not in some kind of attempt to earn it, but out out of that freedom. And, you know, I can actually think of a very recent example in our church of people uh, living out Jesus's exhortation here when he says in verse three and four, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that you, that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Many of us, you know, unless you've been living under a rock, have heard of the books, A Series of Unfortunate Events by Lemony Snicket. Most of us are familiar with that. There was even a Netflix adaptation a couple of years ago that just recently finished. Is anybody not familiar with a series of unfortunate events? Oh, man. Good book. Books. You should read them. But uh, what's sad is Nicole and I went through our own series of unfortunate events kind of since the beginning of the year up until now. Uh, just a couple different things from car trouble to a dying dog to literal sewage spewing out and overflowing from my downstairs toilet all over out into the, the, the dining room. It's just sewage all over my floor in a house with four kids who still like to walk around barefoot, crawl on their hands, and occasionally, when I'm not vigilant enough, eat stuff off of it. So I was having a little bit of a mini panic attack. My poor wife got to see the the brunt of that as I'm trying to get sewage off of our dining room floor that is also reaching out to my computer now. It was an absolute nightmare. You know, there was other things that happened as well, but reliving the trauma of that moment has got me kind of blanking on what the... Nicole could tell you a little bit more about that, but all, all that to say... Some of the men in our church stepped up in a really big way and helped our, our family out financially. It was getting pretty bad as we were shilling out a bunch of money to fix all these things that were going wrong in our life. And the best part about that, I have no clue who they are. I know who one of them is because they, they were a little late to come and, and respond to Brad and Rick reaching out. And so they hand, handed me a little bit in cash. But like, I have no clue who most of the men who helped our family out are. All I know is that they're silent, faithful followers of Jesus who decided to help a brother and his family out. And Rick, Rick and Brad might know, or I'm sure they, they do know, but I have, I have no clue. And as far as I'm concerned, I'm, I'm okay with that. And I, I bet they are too, knowing that they don't need my approval. None of them have come up to me bragging about it, seeking my approval, asking for some kind of special blessing or something or any kind of return favor. They, they just gave in secret and God knows in secret. And that's sufficient for them. And I, I want to encourage and exhort all of us to consider their example. And the example that Jesus had laid before us, and, and just to say thank you, whoever you are, because it really did help my family. Uh, we were stressing and figuring out how we were going to, you know, put food on the table and pay bills and putting like power bills out to the end of the month and stuff like that. So whoever you are, thank you very much. In our good works and our giving, do it for God, whose approval you already have and not for man's, whose you may never get. And even if you do, it won't last. That, that, that's another sad thing about man's approval. I used to be a recruiter for the, for the military, and we always joked, we, we had a saying, like, you could go from hero to zero in the span of a couple days. You could write four contracts in one month, and the next month write zero contracts, and all of a sudden you were a zero. You were a loser again. And everything you did the month before was nothing. Some of you who've worked in sales know exactly what I'm talking about. One month you could be the star of the show and the, the VIP of the company, and the next month, because you're not making the sales, nobody remembers what you did the, you know, the month before. Nobody cares. It's all about what you're doing today to earn your approval before your coworkers and your boss. And that's kind of how the world runs. But it's not so in God's kingdom. And God's kingdom is always so different than the way things operate here on earth. And thank God it is that way. 
In a similar vein, this is also something to consider when we pray. Look at verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. You know, this, this is probably, I'm just, this is kind of a guess, an estimate I'm throwing out here, but maybe around like the last 50 years or so, maybe even longer than that. The accusation that religious people are big hypocrites is oftentimes used as a reason for people just outright rejecting the faith altogether or saying, I don't go to church because it's full of a bunch of religious hypocrites. How much of that is driven by media and pop culture as opposed to actual experience? I don't, I don't know. You know, none of us could ever know, especially, you know, on this side of glory, we may never know. Anecdotally, just from my own personal experience, I honestly think some of the biggest hypocrites have been outside the church and most of the people I've met in church have been like, yes, I'm, I'm totally a big sinner. I, I need the grace of God. And that's mostly because I've been a part of two very gospel-centered churches. It was like Living Stones and Gospel Community Church. And it's always been about grace and our, our desperate need for God. So anecdotally, that's been most of what I've seen. So I personally think a lot of that is driven by media or misunderstandings because oftentimes people can misunderstand. We have a grace-based salvation Yes, but it also, it kind of moves and stirs us into action. I think sometimes people blur that distinction and, and confuse Christian living with salvation. And maybe that, that's it. Were anyone to misunderstand though, I don't know why they wouldn't just look to the words of Jesus. Because in verse 5, here we have Jesus addressing hypocrisy in his own time. Imagine the shock and horror of people who, who this day who are despising Christianity because of religious hypocrisy. And they come to the words of Jesus who calls it out. And says, this is a bad thing. If you hate religious hypocrisy, man, have I got a religion for you. As a matter of fact, the founder and finisher of our faith hated it, as, hated it as well. And he called it out in his own time. Those who would put on a display of righteousness before others seeking the approval of men, whether they would be praying in public or giving in public so that people would see and give them approval, Jesus calls this out. The problem Jesus addresses in verse 5 is really the same problem he addressed back in verses 1 through 4, and the same problem we may see addressed again next week in verses 16 through 18. These aren't people, especially concerning prayer, these aren't people talking to their Father in heaven. It's religious people putting on a show for their followers so that people could see that they're holy, that they're righteous, that they're doing the things that they, they should be doing, signaling to others that they are virtuous people, that they're good people doing the right things that they should be doing. I really think there are some interesting observations that you could make concerning private prayer and public prayer. If one only prays when other people are watching, I mean, you could forget their prayer life altogether. What does this say about their faith? Their prayer life in private probably reflects much of an unbeliever if they're only seeking to pray when other people are around and watching so that they can know that they're checking the religious blocks. It's, it's someone who may in all reality be an unbeliever. Some of you may hear that and... Uh, feel a little discouraged. The truth is, I think us as modern Christians probably have some of the biggest stumbling blocks when it comes to prayer. Uh, especially living in the West in our current epoch or time period, we probably have some of the biggest struggles. We're very practical, very realistic. Many of us are incredibly busy. We, we, we don't pray because we don't see the immediate results. We don't pray because we're so busy with work or social obligations. Phones, hobbies, kids, chores, errands, even ministry can become a stumbling block to coming to God in private prayer. But I think one of the reasons might be we might be making too much of prayer, making too much of, of, a, of a scene or too much of a vision of what it should be before stepping into it. Look what Jesus says about the Gentiles who pray in the instruction 
that he continues through with his followers in verses 7 through 8. And when you pray, verse 7, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. There's no need to impress God with an incredible vocabulary, or even a bunch of what I call Christianese. Maybe you guys have heard that term before. Using a bunch of Christian language when you come to God, you don't need to go to God and, and pray like, God, I just pray for a hedge of protection and an anointing over us as we go with traveling mercies. And, you know, before this day that you've given us, like, if you don't talk like that, there's no reason to go to God and talk that way. There, there's no show or facade you need to put on before God. There, there's even some people in Christian culture who I know, and I'm not, I'm not bashing people who do. Sometimes there's a legitimate reason, but some people will pray to God in like the old King James English when they do some kind of uh, public prayer which is not bad. I'm just saying, if you've kind of grown up in that culture and that's how you speak, that makes sense. But if you're just doing it for some kind of religious display before others to make sure I sound like one of these people before, uh, before God, that, that's not necessary. You can actually come to God and talk to him just like you would uh, throughout your day. There's nothing special. You don't need to conjure up any kind of special Christian language to come and commune with God. And this is what Jesus is saying. You don't need to heap up these empty phrases because that's all they are. Do you speak like that? Do you use those empty phrases when you speak in your regular day? Then there's no need to pretend when you come before God. And, and what's beautiful is that if you don't know what to say, look at verse 8. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. He, he already knows. And even so much greater than this, if you look at Romans 8, Paul says that the Spirit prays on our behalf at sometimes when it's too hard to find the words to say to God. If you're just sitting there in silence, maybe you're struggling with something very deep and don't know how to even, you're, you're just mentally exhausted and can't even communicate the words you need to. The good news is that the Spirit is interceding on your behalf, praying to God exactly what you need in that moment. And that's a great encouragement. You don't even need to know the words to say. The Spirit will intercede for you so that God hears the depth of your heart and what you truly desire. Sometimes there's something called the noetic effects of the fall, which is basically... The fall didn't just affect us physically, but somehow it's also affected our minds and our spirits so that sometimes it's hard to communicate what we're going through. And the beautiful thing is, is that the spirit uh, overcomes the noetic effects of the fall and actually speaks to God what we long for him to know about us. And so that's another encouragement we have. And, and for our encouragement, I just got to bring attention to verse eight. He knows what you need before you ask. You don't need to be shy. He knows what you need, what you've been struggling with. You can just talk to him about it. Confess sins to him. You're not going to shock or surprise God and take heart because he knew what you were going to do back when he sovereignly determined to save you. He didn't grant you the gift of faith just for you to walk away for something that Christ had already died for. You can come to him and confess. He knew exactly what we, what, whatever sin it is that you've been holding on to that you haven't brought to God. He's not surprised. He knew you were going to do that back when, he, back when he determined to save you. So you can take encouragement in that. I actually did a sermon a while. This was a long time ago. I actually talking about my daughter, which is weird because she's in the room right now. I, I don't, she probably doesn't know what I'm, she doesn't know I'm talking about her. It's okay. <laughs> but I mentioned this to community group too. She, she started speaking at the age of four. So for the first four years of her life, which I mean, for the first year, that's obvious. I mean, they're, they're just a baby. You're not expecting much, but she didn't, she didn't talk. She had a couple words like this, which is, is like this. But then as we tried to teach her more words, she even forgot that word and had trouble communicating what she needs. And I mentioned how Many times, I, she would point at something, and I, I'm her father. I know what she's asking. I know what she wants. But I, I desired greatly just to hear her say, Daddy, can I have a banana? Like, that would have broken my heart back then if she would have just said that. That would have been one of the most precious things she would have just said to me. And I just wanted to hear from her. 
I, I know what she needs. She needs food. She needs sustenance. Or if she's crying, I know she's tired. But just to be able to hear her say that. And it's such a blessing now because she talks so much and I love it. And loves to sing too. And you might hear a little bit of it as I'm up here. And then another encouragement I want to give you. Everybody has phones nowadays. But uh, does anybody have their phone out right now? Can anybody pull up a stopwatch? Yeah. Okay. You say go and I'll start reading. When I say stop, you hit the button. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Stop. 18 seconds. Jesus says at the beginning of this verse, pray then like this. He just told us how not to pray. And then he gives us a model of prayer that lasted 18 seconds. Raise your hand right now if you do not have 18 seconds in your day to go and talk to God. Is anybody that busy? If so, we need to rearrange your, your uh, schedule a little bit. I, I don't want you to hear that in a condemning way, but I hope you hear that in a very freeing way. Your prayer to God doesn't need to impress anyone or impress God. This prayer from Jesus that he delivers is so simple. 18 seconds. He acknowledges God. He honors God. He asks for provision, forgiveness, and protection. Boom. Done. 18 seconds. I think a lot of us, we might be hesitant to step into prayer because we think it needs to be something incredibly deep and profound and spiritual. Maybe we need to go to a very quiet place where we get a journal out and, and do like five or 15 minutes of prayer. And that's great. It's great for us to reflect and spend time and commune with God. And that can be very enriching. But Jesus in this own model just gives a very simple 18 second prayer. That, that was funny. Uh, some, some part of church history actually says that a little bit was added onto this prayer in different manuscripts. So even, even human beings saw this prayer and was like, this isn't enough. We need to add a little bit to this. This 18 seconds is too short. We need to add some kind of conclusion to this. And it's funny how, how much we think we need to do to impress God when he's already done all of it for us through Jesus Christ. And we can just come to him with something so simple as an 18-second prayer, and God could be glorified in that. Incredible. And there are different models that people have made. But this model that Jesus gives himself is so short, sweet, and simple. And, and really, as we, we move into the prayer itself, we could spend hours unpacking this. I mean, I, I laughed at Rick because this could have been a whole other sermon. I was supposed to stop at, uh, I was actually supposed to stop at verse uh, four earlier this week, but then he texted me and asked if we could move through to verse 15 to catch up in the sermon series. And I was like, yeah, that's fine. And then I looked at the, the pa- I was like, oh, the Lord's prayer. I was like, ooh, that's a lot. <laughs> I was like, that's a lot to just shove in with the other part of the sermon. But the biggest thing I want you to take away from this prayer as we walk through it really quickly before we close is the many facets of the gospel that this prayer actually shines a light on. Look at this. As you look through the prayer, some important things to notice is that God has saved a people, not individuals. It's very communal. Look at the language. Our, us, we. There's no yous or eyes in, the, in this passage. It's all about a community. God has called us into a family. He's called us to be a part of the body of Christ. It also speaks relationally to the change that's taken place between us and God. He calls him Father. We're brothers and sisters of one another, but we're also God's children now. He has predestined us for adoption, as Ephesians 1.5 says, and we can relate to him as our father, even right there at the beginning of the prayer. We can ask him for sustenance. We see in the, the petition for daily bread. Now, what father in this room, if you're a father, who in this room is not burdened to provide for his children? Is God less of a father than you? That he's not going to listen to that petition and prayer and answer and respond to it? No. 
This prayer looks forward to the hope we have in a reunited heaven and earth when these two things come back together again, when they were ripped apart in the fall. We want God to come and rule on earth just as he does in heaven. We desire to see the kingdom of God breaking through the day, breaking through today. That is one of the, another petition and another aspect of the gospel, the future hope we look forward to. It seeks to see God's grace continually applied, not just in forgiving us, but growing in grace as we extend it out towards others. Forgive us as we forgive others who've trespassed against us. Sometimes a difficult thing for us to do. More on that later. It also speaks to partial transformation here and now. Jesus didn't want to just save us for heaven uh, so that then and only then will we no longer wrestle with sin and have victory over it. He's working in us now to see the influence of sin diminished in our lives so that we would be transformed. There's a petition to see uh, the temptation of the enemy pushed back and repelled in our lives. So there, there, there's many different parts of the gospel. The future hope we have, the family we've been called into now, the transformational aspect of it. The gospel is just dripping all throughout this, this prayer, which is amazing. And something that we could even have our, on our mind as we go to prayer is the gospel. Because it, it is really the fulcrum of all of what we do as Christians. All of what we do is centered upon what Jesus has done for us in calling us into the family of God. So it's a great thing to have in mind as you pray. And obviously Jesus had it in mind as he goes through the petitions of this prayer. And this prayer is a great model for us in how the gospel is weaved throughout it. You're God's child. You've been called into a kingdom where your needs will be met, our sins forgiven, bitterness in our hearts removed, and temptation completely gone. All of it gives glory to God for what he's done for us. And Jesus closes this passage, uh, pointing us again to what a heart that's been changed by God looks like. As we look at verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Again, finally, we're called not to live in hypocrisy. How, how can we who have been forgiven not go and forgive others? Jesus' condemnation of hypocrisy has been so strong in these passages that finally in verse 15, he comes out and says that it could stop you from receiving forgiveness from God. Not applying the grace that he's given you to others could actually stop you from receiving the very grace that he's extended to you. Whatever sin somebody has committed against you is nothing compared to what God has given you in having forgiven you of your sins. I'm not saying that whatever sin was done against you is nothing. It's absolutely something which, which all people will be judged for, either in Christ or out of Christ. But what I'm saying is the grace that God has given you should move you to actually go and forgive others. It absolutely should. For one I, I say this all the time, but God gave you life. Boom. We're already in the hole by a lot. I mean, what did you do to earn your existence? You couldn't have done anything. That was a pure act of God's grace having given you life. Before you existed, you didn't exist. There's nothing you could have given God to earn existence. So you, he's already extended grace to you and given you life. And then we've rebelled from the time of our youth. We rebelled against God and pushed back. And he's forgiven us of all these things and probably much more than we realize. The Bible often talks about God restraining evil in our hearts, and there's no telling, having given, been given full vent over to what's truly uh, the, the darkest desires of our heart, we really don't know what sins we are capable of. That's, that's one of the common graces of God, is that many times he uses stuff like law enforcement, laws, and different things to keep us from actually engaging in the full extent of the sin that we want to. So we really don't, we can't even fathom the full grace that God has poured out on us. Because, because of all the grace that God has poured out, it should move us into response. In our giving, in our prayer, in, in, in all the things that we, sh we do, God's grace should move us into response. Not as a means of seeking anyone's approval, but it, 
out of the freedom that we now have in God's approval that could never be shaken, never taken away. It's not like man's approval that's here one day and gone the next. God's approval is here. It's on you. It's eternal. There's nothing you could have done to shake God's approval because there was never a point in time where in which he had given it to you. It's, it's an eternal thing fixed in eternity that he determined before the foundation of the world that he would look upon you approving of you because he had hidden you in Christ. But before you could have done anything good or evil, you now have that freedom. If you're in Christ, you have God's approval. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for who you are and what you've done, the approval that you've given us. It, it can seem kind of exhausting, especially just the world we've grown up in all around us. We've been kind of conditioned to always seek approval. And we thank you for the words that you've given us in scripture that's just like rest for our souls to hear that we have uh, your approval and your grace over us always and forever. We thank you, Jesus, for coming and earning that for us and delivering it to us through all of what you've done. We love you, God, and we thank you for this. Amen.